Once again, Jesus, we worship you. We thank you that you have come, Emmanuel, and you live within us. And may you be exalted this morning through the preaching of the word of God. In your name we pray, amen. Tom, if you come up with Josiah and Natalie. Who's the pyromaniac of the family? <laughs> this one? There you go. I'll tell you what, I'll just guide you through it. So we'll start with lighting the purple candle, but not yet. Then we'll go to the pink and then the two other purple ones. So let me just give us all a little bit of a re-education on the colorful significance of each Advent candle. Um, Since Christmas gives us time to concentrate on the wonder of Jesus' birth and what it means to us, during the Advent season, we remember and we look forward. We meditate on Jesus' sacrifice that brings us to repentance, and we anticipate his return. In the busyness of the Christmas season, celebrating Advent provides us a time to focus our hearts on Jesus, and don't we all need that? Advent is a word with Latin roots, and it means coming. And Christians use this period of time before Christmas to prepare for the celebration of Jesus' birth. It is also a time of repentance and meditation while anticipating Jesus' second coming. So in other words, it's a time of preparation. Advent is a season rich in wonder as we focus on the incarnation of God. In Jesus, we have the divine God who left his glory to become the perfect example of a sinless man. He enlightens people and generates in them eternal life for those who believe and receive in him. The first Sunday of Advent's purple candle signifies hope. So just just light one of the purple candles. The purple collar symbolizes royalty. A repentance and fasting. This is a time for us to reflect on what it must have been like to feel the depth of God's silence during the period between the Old and New Testament. 400 years of silence. It's a time to ponder the prophecies about the promised Messiah. We begin the season with a mindset that creates hope in our hearts. You might remember Isaiah 9-2. It reads, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. In Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, you know this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The second Sunday of Advent, Advent's purple candle signifies preparation. So light the second purple candle in the front there. On the second Sunday of Advent, we light the hope candle. And then we light the preparation candle. First, hope blooms as we realize the prophecies about the Messiah are true. Then we begin to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord Jesus. On, imagine how Joseph must have rushed to prepare the crude stable for Mary and the soon-to-be-born Jesus. As we rush through the season of buying gifts, 
and attending parties, and yes, having a Christmas breakfast at church. May we pause and reflect on the words of Isaiah, where he writes this, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The third Sunday of Advent's pink candle signifies joy, so light the pink candle. This color pink represents rejoicing. Rejoicing is our response to the good news, joy that our Messiah has come. The light of the world sweeps away the darkness in our world and in our hearts. We seek him and enjoy, find him. Remember the words of the angel, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The fourth Sunday of Advent's purple candle signifies love. So you can light the last candle. That's the culmination. It always ends in love. The Messiah comes in love and righteousness. The angels filled the sky with the greatest news of love. They visited the lowest of lows in Jewish society, the shepherds, with the most amazing birth announcement. This love is no respecter of persons, but is for all who receive. And as we look at all the, light, all the four candles that are lit, we ponder, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Then, of course, on Sunday, or Saturday, a Christmas Eve service will light the white candle. There's a visual, symbolic reminder for us all of this time of Advent. Thank you, Tom. And yes, Brian, I did decide to do this right before the sermon, so this will burn less, so less wax will be on the carpet for you to clean up, all right? Very good. Very good. Okay. We were watching, we like to watch the, at, when we're all available at night, um, like a Christmas movie this time of year. And there was the old famous A Christmas Story, remember that? It came out in 1983. There's a Christmas Story Christmas that was out the other day, a newer version of it and so on. And they have the, the font that looks kind of like that. So I thought that's the idea for that style of font. But what I want to talk about, as we will talk about this morning really, is, is birth. I want to uh, just tell you, or I think I've mentioned this before, but we'll go over it again briefly. We had three unique births of our children. Uh, Mark, as you know, is a very big boy. We had no idea, except Erica kept complaining because it was the first time she was pregnant. Because we had adopted Jacob. She had, but right here, right? It was all numb because he was pushing up because he was so big. And... Um, she had what the Braxton Hicks, I think you guys know what that is, and so on. And she'd been having those. Well, it turns out that it wasn't just Braxton Hicks. By the time we went to the, uh, she said, I'm hungry, so she had a bowl of Cheerios. And Larry said, These are getting pretty intense. We should go to the, the doctor. And you were about nine months. 
And it wasn't just Bracton Hicks. She was already eight centimeters dilated. <laughs> and because she had the food, and they, but they wanted her to, to, to be awake for the birth, they tried to give her an epidural, and it, it, that didn't work. Ended up having an emergency C-section, and out came this giant of a child <laughs> whose legs were like this. His head and legs were like this for I don't know how long because he was just crammed in there. They slowly worked their way down. So this was the emer- he was the emergency cesarean section child. And so that was, that was Mark. So not a, a natural, normal birth. The natural birth was David. My wife can be competitive, and she really wanted curtains. So I said, you do all natural, I'll get you curtains. <laughs> and she said, you're on. <laughs> and I think she regrets that, because it was... I was like, okay, you're hurting my hand as, you, as you're giving birth here, and you wanted these curtains, but like, no matter what I said, she was in so much pain. And David came out, but she got those curtains. And she was sore, but she had a child, and it was David. Then Lydia came by and said, let's just go for a different way. We've done the emergency section. We've done an afterbirth. Lydia is the epidural birth. And it was, couldn't be any, it was night and day difference. She is there pushing. Lydia is literally out. The nurse is holding her. And she's like, should I continue pushing? And we're like, no, you're done. The baby is out. Okay. Three different kinds of births. The C-section, emergency C-section, the natural birth, and the epidural birth. And when you look in the Bible, and when Luke records the birth of Jesus Christ, the sense one gets when reading it it's just kind of a rather uneventful birth. In fact, it's described very concisely in just eight brief words. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Was he a big baby? I mean, was he a small baby? Was he, you know, obviously an easy child to raise? Was it an easy birth? Any complications? Obviously, we don't know. But, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, is all it says. So I assume no complications. And so what is a, just kind of a normal birth, we all know, though, that it is the birth of all births. The Gospels present the birth from a historical human perspective. In Luke, for example, uh, you can follow the story of Mary and Joseph riding on a donkey in the stable and the manger and the swaddling cloth and so on. And we get kind of sentimental when we think about it, and we're all familiar with this story it's kind of depicted in this picture right here. I just picked up a random picture off the internet, and you can kind of see some of the, the things they see. Notice the, uh, here's the angels with the little halo above them, and they decided to make Joseph and Mary angel-like, which we know they're not. But here we have this Christmas star, it's at night, and there's the shepherds and so on. And, or are these the wise men? I, I can't tell. These might be the wise men giving gifts. But you get the idea here, they're the angels. And that's kind of the, the image we have in our mind of what... Uh, was happening. But what I want to do this morning is look at the birth of Christ from a different perspective, a perspective as we look back on it, what I call more of a divine perspective. Because I said it's very easy to get sentimental about the birth of Jesus and baby Jesus in a manger and kind of fail to understand kind of who was really there. 
we find this divine perspective in Hebrews chapter 1. So get your Bibles out, turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I can't read that fine here. Can you even see that that well? Okay, because we'll have stuff in black after that. So, Okay, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Or you can just get up and walk away like Don is as I get the Bibles out, so ain't right. Hey, anything right now to keep you awake with all that food? You guys are right? You awake? Okay. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. In these verses, which are pretty short and concise, basically say this, that Jesus is better than anything and everything. This is what Joseph and Mary and the wise men and the shepherds were seeing that Christmas night. The superiority of Jesus Christ. How is this baby superior? Well, let's look at this phrase by phrase this morning. And eight simple points that you can write down if you want. And here's the first one. Now you can see that, right? Jesus is superior because he is the complete revelation of God. Look at verse, verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and part of verse 2. This is God, if he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days have spoken to us in his Son. These verses, in essence, refer to the Old Testament. The father, fathers refer to the ancestors of the Jews. And how did God speak to the Jews in the Old Testament? Through prophets. And he spoke through the prophets in portions. The word portions means segments. If you want to put it another way, in a more simpler way, he spoke to the people through 39 books that make up the Old Testament. That's what the segments or portions mean, from Genesis to Malachi. Those books describe different ways God spoke to the Jews. Those are the different many ways. Dreams, visions, impressions, an actual voice, angels, circumstances. He spoke to them on a piece of stone called what? The Ten Commandments, and many other ways. There are over 350 references to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. But still, with all of that, God's revelation was incomplete. It was fragmented and progressive. It's like having one piece of the puzzle, and then another author had another piece of the puzzle, then another author had another piece of the puzzle. They never had the entire completed puzzle, never the full picture. And these writers, by the way, were spread over 1,500 years, and in some cases didn't know each other. That's why Peter wrote this, you can just listen. As for this salvation, this is in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 11, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. See, they had the incomplete picture. And they were searching the scriptures to find everything out. But as true as the Old Testament was, it was incomplete. 
It was a progressive revelation, but it hadn't progressed to its fullness until you come to the New Testament. It says, in these last days, how has God spoken to us? In his son. See, in him, God did not display some of the truth. He displayed all of it. In him, God did not display some of himself, but displayed himself fully. That's why we read, for in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2.9. So gone were the days of this partial or fragmented progressive revelation. Jesus is his last and full and final revelation. This is the theme of the New Testament. Think about this. The four Gospels record the life and work of Jesus. The book of Acts records the impact of his life and work. The epistles describe the theological significance and impact of his work. And the book of Revelation talks about his second coming when his work is consummated. You see him in everything you need to know about God. It's in him. You can see in him the wisdom of God, the intelligence of God, the omniscience of God, for he knew things that were in the heart of man when it was never spoken. You see him in the power of God as he does wondrous miracles. You see in Jesus the creator ability of God as he creates life out of death, as he creates hearing out of deafness, sight out of blindness, food to feed a multitude. You can see him in the compassion of God as he weeps at a funeral. You can see him in the justice of God as he makes a whip and cleanses the temple. And yes, you can even see him when he goes to a, a, a pool near Solomon's portico and he heals one man who'd been sick for 38 years. Plenty of other sick people were there. The father had the son do that on the Sabbath to create conflict because the Pharisees and the religious leadership were just, had created so many extra laws and had a corrupted and misinterpreted and misapplied the Sabbath, it was a burden to the people. And God said, that's not right. And God sent his son. And he healed that man, and it brought conflict and persecution to his son. But he was going to make a wrong right. And that's what God does in his son. He even made a whip, and he cleansed the temple. You can see in Jesus all there is to see of God because he is God. And perhaps Jesus said it best to Philip's, Philip, the, the disciple, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, I don't understand how God himself can fully dwell in human form, much less in the form of a baby, but that's what happened. And that is what all those eyes were seeing that night. This is a reason, number one, why Jesus is superior. He is God incarnate, the complete revelation of God. Let's look at reason number two. He's superior because he is the heir of everything. It says, whom he appointed heir of all things. You see that in Hebrew 1, 2? He is going to inherit everything. And as a creator, our creator, he owns the universe because he made it. It's his creation. That was given over to Satan at the fall of man, partially reclaimed at his resurrection. He will reclaim it in his fullness when he comes again in his return as king of kings and lord of lords. 
he will exercise his sovereign rule over his inheritance, take back the universe, the cosmos. How will he do it? Well, first of all, he'll cleanse it to prepare it for his millennial kingdom. Then he'll destroy it. He'll create a new heaven and a new earth, which he will reign over all that exists throughout eternity. And by the way, the inheritance of everything, and I mean everything, the son earned through his sacrificial death and resurrection, he shares it with his brothers and sisters. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what awaits you is an inheritance. An inheritance of a, of, of a portion can be significant, but an inheritance of everything is massive. Again, it's why you're... The, the, the inheritance that awaits us is substantial. And I think this is why Paul prays in Ephesians 1.18 that we are to know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You leave here with nothing. But when you step into God's kingdom, what do you gain? Everything. Okay, and you can come visit my house. I'm right next to God's house. Okay? <laughs> I'm assuming you may have to go far, travel far distance, but that's okay. I'm patient because God's going to change it about me. Okay? So. Let me get a third reason. Jesus is superior because he is the creator. Hebrews 1, 2 said, through whom he also, look at this, made the world. I mean, Jesus was the one, just, just think about this, who created the universe. John 1, 3 says this, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Paul said the same thing in Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. This means that he made the cosmos, not just the earth, which of course is matter, but he made the created order. This means that in the beginning when God spoke and created time, space, and matter out of nothing, who was that? That was Jesus' son. It was Jesus who spoke and created light, separating light and darkness. It was Jesus who set the foundations of the earth so it would not teeter and started the cycle of the earth's rotations of day and night. It was Jesus who separated the waters above from the waters below that engulfed the earth and created infinite space. He, held, he holds or held all the waters where? In the span of the palm of his hands. He takes the waters and he separates it like this and creates infinite space. It was Jesus who separated the dry land from the seas, who created and filled infinite space with stars at night and attached light to them and created moons and a sun. It was Jesus who created all marine life and birds of the sky and beasts and cattle and regrettably the creeping things of the earth. They have a purpose, I guess. How many bees do they make honey other than that? I don't know what anything else does. But he made them. And it was Jesus who created man in his own image. So lying in that manger, in that little infant life, was the one who was the heir of all things, the creator who made everything. 
That makes sense that the fourth point, Jesus is superior because of his glory. It says he is the radiance of his glory, Hebrews 1, 3. Let me explain this. The word radiance, you know what that word means? I think you'll find it's interesting. It means brightness. And it's this, radiance means, it simply means to send forth light. So Jesus is a shining forth of God's glory. So when John wrote of what the disciples saw when they looked at Jesus, this is what he wrote in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw what? His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Look at this picture here again. What do you see in Jesus? Look at the little baby. Look at his face. What's the face doing right here? What's this little stuff right on here? That's the glow. Okay? He's glowing. He's the radiance of his glory. What they saw was the same shining forth that is true of God. We know that God's a spirit, right? He's invisible. How does God then reveal himself? Well, in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, God revealed himself through light. It's called the Shekinah glory, or the glow of God. Remember in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, Moses was up in the mountains. He was about to bring down the Ten Commandments, and he asked to see the glory of God. And what does God do? This guy says, no man can see the full glory of God and live, but the Lord allows Moses to see his back as he passes by. He covers his, his eyes as he's you know, coming almost like this direction. Then he removes it, and so he can turn, and he can see the back of God. And the glory was so overwhelming that it attached itself to where? To Moses' face. And it literally reflected off his face. So he goes down from the mountain, carrying Ten Commandments, and what do the people see? The radiant glow of, of, of Moses. And it was so overwhelming for the people that they asked him to do what? Put a veil over his face. The point is that when God revealed himself, because he's an invisible spirit, he revealed himself in light. I mean, God, think of it this way. At the, Peter, James, and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus goes ahead, and what does he do? He transforms. He takes off that fleshly layer, and what happens next? He glows. His eyes are like fire, and his body becomes white like light, and it begins to shine. That is what? It's the kind of glory. That's the radiance of his glory. Okay? 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they cannot see, watch this, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They can't see the light of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They can't see God. They're blinded by that. They understand God through the gospel until they understand light, but that light is the glory of, of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay? And when God speaks in Exodus 33 and reveals himself in his glory, this is what he says. He says, I will make my all my goodness pass before you. It will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I'll, I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So the glory of God, I mean, when God said that, you can't and we can't see those virtues or those attributes. 
but they're manifested in the glory. Okay? But God manifested that, the glory of those attributes in light. So when we see that light was a symbolic representation of those attributes, so when it says Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, it simply means he possesses the same attributes. Same attributes of God. That he is a very shining forth of God. So when Paul is on his way to persecute the church, Jesus Christ visits him, what happens? He's blinded by what? What was that light? The glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay? I can tell him this story to my boys, but when Jesus was about to be arrested, John talks about the soldiers coming to, to arrest him, and then they all fall to the ground, don't like they're dead. But what happened? He pulled back, we think, a part of his eye, revealed that glory, and they just fell like they were dead man. Okay? Jesus is the radiance of his glory. He is the light of God. Jesus is superior because he is, because of his nature. Look at verse 3. He's the exact representation of his nature. So Jesus is not only the radiance of God, he's also the exact representation of God's nature. Simply put, it means he's the exact duplication. He is precisely what God is. And to be more specific, he is exactly the same in essence. This means that since God is love, Jesus is the embodiment of love in human flesh. Again, this is why Paul could write, he is the image of the invisible God. So we talk about Jesus Christ, that baby that's born in Bethlehem and swaddling clothes in that manger, we're talking about none other than God himself. And Jesus is superior, and I don't understand how this happens, but because of his sustaining power. It says he upholds all things, look at that, by the word of his power. That baby was upholding all things by the word of his power. If you pause for a moment and think about this, by the sheer power that he has to speak, he can uphold all things. And all things, meaning the created universe, that means the material and the immaterial, the physical and the spiritual even that which is eternal, such as angels and humans. He sustains everything. He is the principal cohesion of the world. He makes the universe a cosmos instead of a chaos. He sustains the universe as an ordered, reliable cosmos instead of an erratic and unpredictable mess. That is what evolution would tell you. The Bible has a completely different message. By the way, just so you know, there's no Hebrew word for nature as we understand the word nature. When we think of nature, the way we've been indoctrinated, we think of mother nature, right? There is no mother nature, in case you didn't know that. In fact, in the series Yellowstone, a young cowboy is... Take, talking to an environmental activist about a fire that's high in the mountains. She asks how the fire gets put out, and the, this young cowboy says, well, God eventually sends rain. 
And she immediately fires back and says, nature. Nature sends the rain. And this is how we tend to think of nature, because we've removed God from society. But in the Hebrew, there is no word for nature as is currently understood in our culture. Thus, when we think of something running properly and consistently, like the sun rising and setting each day, we say it's because of the laws of nature, right? That's what we've been taught. Here's a little clue. There are no laws of nature. There are no laws of nature, as it's under, nature is understood. There are only laws of God. And the laws of God are just the mind and the power of Christ working through the universe. I mean, I suppose you could say the laws of nature are the laws of God, but things are operating. The sun is coming up, and it's going to set this evening because of the laws of God that he created and he sustains. Everything is traced back to God through Christ who sustains everything. Christ has the power and the authority to hold the entire universe together by those laws which are nothing more than a reflection of his power. We all like routine, right? To some extent, some more than others. The reason why there's routine in this world, the reason why there's always enough oxygen to breathe, the reason why there's always enough warmth to keep you alive is because God has said it so. That's why. We don't have a consistently functioning universe by chance. Think how ridiculous that statement is, that I have to make that. But that's what the world would have you believe. The whole universe is functioning as it was designed by his unsearchable wisdom, his boundless power, his ability to control every element, every atom, every minute component of every atom, to control it all, all the time, keeps him directing, sustaining the complicated movements of this incredible universe. Now, it is complex and it is complicated. So what do you mean, Pastor? Well, let me explain it to you. How complicated is the function of our universe? I don't know if you know this or not, but this may be the one thing you take away from this sermon. Just listen to this. If the Earth's rotation slows down just a fraction, we would alternately freeze to death and roast to death. The sun has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If it was any closer or any farther away, we would alternately freeze to death or roast to death. Our globe is tilted at 23 degrees, an exact angle, which enables us to have four seasons. Any alteration of that would cause vapors from the ocean to pile up on the north and south pole, and we would have massive continents of ice dramatically affecting even the capability of life. If the moon didn't remain at its exact distance from the earth, the ocean tides would cover the land completely twice a day. If the ocean slipped a few feet deeper than it is, carbon dioxide and oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere would be completely absorbed and no vegetable life could live on the planet. If our atmosphere didn't remain constant, if it just thinned out a little bit, many of the thousands upon thousands of meteors that come plummeting toward Earth and are now completely harm, harmlessly destroyed 
burned up in the atmosphere would bombard us. And you want to tell me today by the world standards that all that is happening by chance. I'm sorry, I have a mind, I will not suspend reason, and I don't have that much faith. I don't. I don't. Who holds all of this in a delicate balance? Colossians 1.17, and in him all things hold together. Jesus superior because of his atonement. Look at verse 3, when he had made purification of sins. I mean, the wisdom and understanding of God, which created the universe, also devised the plan of redemption. God always knew that someone would have to die for sinners because they were incapable of offering a satisfactory death to meet his standards of righteousness. So Paul wrote saying, for I delivered to you as of first importance, this is of first importance, what I also received. And what is of first importance? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 3. That is the gospel message right then and there. Or again, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Someone Because that someone had to be perfect, the only choice was Jesus. And so the God-man, Jesus, comes to die for sinners. He is the only mediator, for there is one God and one mediator. Also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is superior because of his atonement. And he is superior because of his exaltation. It says, look at verse 3 and 4. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus sitting down is significant because in the holy place there were no chairs. Did you know that? In the temple in the holy place and there was the holy of holies, there was no chairs. Well, why? Because the work of atoning for sins was never done. So when the high priest once a year offered the blood sacrifice, he would go into the Holy of Holies briefly and sprinkle the blood of the animal on it, on the Ark of the Covenant. Do you know he wore a bell around his ankle? And every time he moved, the bell made a sound. And attached to the high priest was a rope. If at any time, while he was offering the once a year animal sacrifice, the bell stopped making a sound... They knew the high priest had sinned and God had taken his life. And they would pull on the rope, dragging the dead body out of the temple. Did you know that? Yep. The high priest was always to be moving while offering this once-a-year sacrifice because that constant movement reminded people that the work of the priest was never done because the constant sin of humanity. Whoever here gets tired of always confessing your sin because you just sin, it seems like, all the time. Yet Jesus, it says, sat down, indicating his work for atoning for sin was done. And where did he sit? At the place of honor, the right hand of God. It says as well, he was given a more excellent name. You can't think of this for us without remembering Philippians 2, 8-11. Since being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, we also see a mention of angels here. I've become as much better as angels. Why this talk of angels? Well, to a Jew, angels were exalted. They knew that angels were an important part of God's unfolding purpose among men. From Isaiah chapter 6, they believed that the angels surrounded the throne of God and worshipped him. Remember that? Isaiah's vision? They saw God as accomplishing his purposes through angels. Angels saved Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Angels appeared to who? Daniel. Jacob wrestled with an angel. And so the Jews knew that angels were the agents by which God delivered the old covenant, the Mosaic law. So in a Jew's mind, the hierarchy was God, then angels, then man. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that it is God and Jesus and then angels. God and Jesus are equal. And after his death and resurrection, it was God and Jesus, then man, because he's restored, because he's in the image of God. Angels are not made in the image of God, then angels. Okay? And then Brockle fans are way down here. Okay, they're, not, they're really, really way down there, okay? So, I had to get a little dig in you, Tom. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that it is God and Jesus and then angels, and God and Jesus are equal. So this is a statement of the deity of Christ. And we're just, you guys okay? One more paragraph and we're done. Lying in a manger, okay? Lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloth, I mean, let me go back to this picture here again. Look at this picture. This is not just another baby. The eyes of Joseph and Mary and the wise men and the shepherds, they're looking at, first of all, the complete revelation of God, the heir of all things, the creator of the universe, the shining forth of God's glory, the exact replication of God in nature, the sustaining power of God holding all things together, the one final atonement for sin, and the eventual exalted King of kings and Lord of lords who sits at the right hand of the throne of God, far above the angels with the name that is above all names. That is a divine perspective of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so it's very simple. I want you to this week, well, the next six days, prepare yourself. Read through the birth of Jesus. Read through, meditate in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and worship him. Spend time praying through this. Prepare yourself. And remember who it is that we are celebrating. It's not just a baby. It's not just a time to give gifts. It is very God of God who made that sun came up and made that rain fall and made the temperature what it is, who created the asphalt and the wood and the heat and everything here, fashioned it really for us that we might reflect that glory back to him. And let's not get caught in the materialism and the commercialism of this season. 
Amen? Would you stand with me? We'll close with a song. You did a good job staying awake with your full bellies. And if you are here and hungry, there's plenty of food out there. We also will be wrapping some gifts, I think, right, Rodney? Angel tree afterwards. Okay, so please stand. We always sing this song on Christmas Eve. I want to sing it twice. So we're going to sing this song, Silent Night, as we close this, this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we worship you with this last song, thank you for your word to us. We worship you as the heir of all things, the complete revelation of God, our sustainer, our creator, the exact the radiance of his glory, the exact replication of, of your nature. You just are everything to us. And may our worship be appropriate this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.